When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. Recording on Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. Here today, so glad to have Jen Northington back on the show as uh, Rebecca and I do a little vacay do si do. Um, but you get to hear some from our favorite folks to come join us. I always feel like, I don't know, Jen, every time you come on, I'm like, oh, here's some interesting Jen stuff. And I've got interesting Jen stuff for you, some questions for you if you're interested in. Um, but what's going on? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. It's a, it's a bonanza of podcasting this week ahead. <laughs> Sci-fi fantasy, we got Read Harder, and now the Book Riot podcast. Like, I am inescapable in your ears. <laughs> <laughs> and we got you coming on vacation, so hopefully you got a little uh, rest and and yeah. retreat uh, over the last few days. A quick shout out to, before we get too far into it, for the BR Patreon. Um, this week, I think it has dropped. So next week, we're taking our first real week break, break from uh, bonus content. It won't be nothing new next week. But this week, we just dropped. Um, Rebecca and I both responded to the New York Times book reviewed by the book questionnaire in prose. Mm. So you got that. And then the week before that, um, we did power ranking the top 20 books of the year 2000. Had a lot of really good responses to that, folks. So if you're interested or if you are a Patreon subscriber already, go listen to that. We had a lot of fun. I am personally motivated to hear good feedback because we had such a good time. We're already looking at what other year um, would be interesting to do. So um, thanks so much there. Book, uh, Patreon.com slash Book Riot Podcast. There's also a link in the show notes. Um, I don't think I had any other follow-up this time. So let's go ahead and do our first sponsor break and, and get right into it. Jen, so I just gave you, let's see, I gave you five links and said, here's the agenda. And we did no <laughs> other prep besides that. So I guess what I would like to do is, is one of these more interesting to the others? You have thoughts. We don't have to hit them all. Um, I provide the the links. You can provide a little direction here at the top if you'd like to. Oh, this is a lot of responsibility, it feels like. I actually would love to talk about this very data-heavy piece yeah. about how 50% of Americans have not finished a book in the last year, mm -hmm. which sounds like a dire headline right but the way that so this is on book riot and kelly jensen one of our longtime editors has crunched the results of the american reading habits survey which i had never heard of and there's like a lot of charts and statistics and things and this is i thought this was really interesting so i guess the first question would be Without having looked at this, and someone asked you, what percentage of Americans do you think finished a book last year? Again, we can't know this because now we're tainted by the data. Right. I'm not sure. I Do you read this as an alarming headline? I mean, I initially, yes, read. Yeah. I was like, what? 52% of people have not finished a single book mm -hmm. in the last year. Like, that sounds 
bananas to me. But then, you know, I also know from other data that we have talked about for years at Book Riot is that like, what is like the like a power reader in yeah. the U.S. is considered somebody who's read 12 books in a year? Is that something like that? Or like maybe it's 10, maybe it's even lower than that. I can't remember. But it's not a lot of books to be considered a power reader. No. So I know that my sense of what's normal for reading is incorrect. Mm -hmm. like I have been in the book industry since, you know, the year 2004, literally. Um, I don't know what's normal. I do not know what's normal. So, and Kelly makes the case that that's actually like a great number. That like f the fact that 48% of people in the U.S. have read a book or more, more than yes. one, but have finished at least one book in the past year is like amazing. So, question mark? <laughs> yeah, I think actually the A book is the least interesting data point. My favorite chart in the year is comes down to a um, bar graph chart split up by how many books, different segments of the, or, you know, by book, what percentage of people read that? Because the the least populated actually chart is the number of people who read one book last year. 1.55% of people, that's the lowest one. Now, by far, the biggest number, interestingly, is started but never finished. 28% yes. of people start a book but didn't finish even that book. And then 22% just don't read. And I think that kind of makes sense to me. There, a quarter of people just don't even try in a year. That kind of feels right-ish to yeah. me. Yeah. But what's interesting, if you read one, you that's – People don't You're read like, one book. That's right. so, you don't read people only because then if you read the next um, cohort bigger is two to three, which is the largest number of people who have read a book at all. 11.8% mm -hmm. of people, then 9.3 for four to five, 10.3%, six to 10, and then, you know, 8% from 11 to 20, and then 6%-ish have read 20 or more. So it's really not how many people have read one book. It's who, who's read two or more books in a year yeah. versus who read yeah. nothing to, to within a right. first approximation. Um, and I guess another thing that's interesting to me is I don't know, and this is off the top of my head, like what's the literacy rate? And does that yes. capture this? I mean, it's not as good as some of the sort of Northern European countries I know, which have like 99% uh, literacy rates. It's always like Sweden or Norway or something. It's like, oh God. Um, so there's, can all these people read books? Do they have access right. to books at all? If you're well, a native and... Spanish speaker, can you get your hands on a book wherever you are? I don't know the answer to all these questions. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Yeah. And, and tellingly, this doesn't include audiobooks. So they defined the American Reading Habits Survey people define a book as an ebook or a physical book, but they don't mm -hmm. count audiobooks. So, like, there's a whole cohort of people who pretty much only read on audio, I think, that are not counted in this. So, like, what is that? Uh, yeah. numbers, which Kelly brings up a few times in different segments. Uh, so, when you consider that, like, this is actually only one third of the ways that you could read. Does it include or, excuse me, digital? Two -thirds. Okay, it's two thirds yeah. of yeah. the way. Yeah, yeah. It's digital or it's digital or physical books, but it doesn't count audio, which mm. obviously should count. Like, I don't understand why they didn't count that. Yeah, I I don't understand that either. I guess this is a battle we used to fight in the old days of a book, right? That listening right. to a book is same as reading it, or they both can be included in reading it. I don't know. I This would be an interesting game. I wonder if I, maybe I'll do some homework and follow up that um, I can then 
pepper Rebecca with blind statistical yes. questions, which is my favorite <laughs> thing to do. Maybe I can go find what percent of people who have listened to one audiobook or more in a given year only listen to audio. They Ooh, don't do it. Yes. I'm guessing it's higher than 1.55%. I would think it would be. But, I think. And, then, and it's lower than 28.8% of right. people who have started never finished, <laughs> but that's a pretty wide barometer there. So, okay, so maybe there's 5% of people that have listened to two to three audiobooks a year. Does that really change the narrative? I guess that 50% is an interesting anchoring headline thing. It gets a good, yeah. Kelly used it. I think even this group uses it as like less than half of people. I don't know. I guess I don't know. There's not a lot of longitudinal work here. Like how does it compare to two years ago or five mm-hmm. years ago or 10 years ago? Look, yeah. I, I would like people to read more. I don't think that's any secret and not a surprise. I think you're in the same um, mm. camp. But considering all the other ways people can spend time, I've been encouraged since we've been doing the site that reading actually has held up fairly well. Everything yeah. else that's been given, TikTok and YouTube and podcasts and all the streaming services home you could ever want, books still hold up well. Of course, they've lost some attention share to other things because those things didn't even exist 10, 15, 20 right. years ago. Right. So that books have held up pretty well. Um, and sales bears this out as well, even though it's down a little bit year over year. Yeah. You know, would it be great if 80% of people read six books a year? Sure. But is that reasonable? I don't really know. And then what is even the addressable market? Um, right. So I'll do right. some follow-up for next time and I'll DM you privately so that you won't be left in the proverbial data dark uh, about you. what it is here. <laughs> um, but this is a good piece. As always, you can find links to the stuff we talk about, bookride.com slash listen. This was by Kelly um, here. I guess the other one is the people, the average number of books per year by age was interesting. Um, millennials were the highest percentage of, uh, had the highest percentage of reading a book at all in, at 33.49%. But the boomers, if a boomer read a book, they read a lot of books, right? The average boomer who right. had read at least one read 9.5 books a year. Free time, is that generational or free time? Like as Gen X starts retiring, I'd assume that number goes up. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, I yeah. would agree. I would agree. Um, so there you go. Uh, let's see. Let's move on down the line. I guess while we're on the audiobooks tip, this mm. is a, a shared interest of yours and mine, I know. And it's also a shared interest here. We talk about the Audible, Spotify, podcast versus audiobooks. Like in some ways, all mm. podcasts are interested in podcasts. So like it's always an interesting right. topic. Um, but the Obamas moving over to Audible from Spotify. Their contract over there is up in a few months. Um, you and I both really like this feature that The Verge does called The Hot Pod, which is mm-hmm. um, a dedicated newsletter, but they also post on The Verge where they're talk where they you know they're really into the world of of podcasting. Actually, The Verge acquired this newsletter called The Hot yeah. Pod, um, and Ariel Shapiro writes it now, and is always really good. So if you're into podcasts, this is some interesting stuff that's interesting. Audible, Rebecca and I have talked about this. You and I have been interested in podcasts too. I know you don't listen to audiobooks really, but like, is this a thing or not a thing? I can't really tell. Um, I listen mm. to my podcast in a bespoke, you know, a, a, a podcast only catcher. And it Spotify is trying to add audiobooks and Audible is trying to add podcasts. Right. They're coming at them from two different ways. 
does this mean anything? Is this Audible's gain and Spotify's loss? I think there's an interesting note here that Spotify didn't make a counter offer to the Obamas yeah. to stick around. Yeah. Um, that the Obamas apparently didn't like the exclusivity window that there was asked, like the you know Obama's interview with like Springsteen, for example. You could only listen to it on Spotify for three months, and I don't know if that was even behind a premium paywall. Audible's product, when it comes to non audiobook subscription is the most confusing thing in the world to me. I don't yes. know how to recommend this to people. I don't know where you're going to go find this. So it's, I, I think we're in the middle of the battlefield here. And like most battlefields, the casualties are clarity and where you can go when it comes to this kind of stuff. I, I don't know. I, I wanted to mark this. I'm not sure I have much to say about it, to be, to be honest at this point. Does anything strike you about these particularly interesting, Jeff? I mean, I'm continually sort of baffled by Spotify's plan lack yeah. of a plan like acquisitions things they let go things they acquire mm. like i don't understand what they're doing right uh and i honestly wonder if they know what they're doing but it seems like a good get for audible in that the obamas have a pretty loyal dedicated fan base mm. and i do think that audible has been doing some interesting things with originals yes they're they are also a little bit all over the place though like they get stuff they lose it they shut it down they start it back up like everybody's sort of all over the map in terms of mm -hmm. offerings and i agree with you like the value proposition and like how you access and what you get if you don't have an account versus you do have an account versus you paid versus you've not paid is like super confusing but I think this is a nice feather in Audible's podcast cap for them, you know, and uh, I'm curious to see like, yeah, because, you know, it seems like a big investment into the yes. podcasting segment yes. for them. And um, it's certainly a very high profile one, whatever yeah. the, I mean, we don't know what the Obama's download numbers are, right? Like we have no idea what those numbers are. So I would expect them to be decent at the very least, if not amazing, but it's certainly decent. So it's going to be, I think it's going to continue to be interesting to see, as you said, like Spotify wants audiobooks, Audible wants podcasts. Everybody wants to serve people who want audio mm -hmm. in all of the ways that they want audio. Like yeah. everybody wants to be your one-stop shopping for what you put in your ear holes. Mm -hmm. So like who's going to actually make that happen? I actually, I think it's like the cable wars all over again though. Like, because people want to be able to pick and choose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a any great point. of us want to get everything from one place. Like it sounds convenient, but in actual practice, who absorbs content like that? Like it, 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 to use the TV metaphor, like or the streaming metaphor. I have Netflix. We have Hulu. I just re-signed up for Disney Plus. Oh my god! Apple. Yes. Like we have HBO Max. I had Paramount Plus for two months <laughs> and then I canceled it. Like you know, I'm like hopping around here. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna go to only one place. And I think most people are not only going to go to one. I mean, you put the different things that you get from various places into one, you know thing that catches all of them but it's it's a content agnostic catcher 
right? Like your your podcatcher is not creating the content. Right, but it also doesn't scabbing. include audiobooks, though, right? I mean, that's what you're right, saying. Right, it also right? doesn't yeah. include audiobooks. Yeah. Right, and like, you know, the way that I have heard from various people, I think a lot of people do get most of their books, audiobooks from Audible, but people also get them from the library. Yeah. Like, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways that people consume audio, and I think the actual market for people who only want to get it from one place is not that big i could be very wrong about that. i think you're right about that and i think the feather in the cap thing you just said a minute ago is the i I think that's a really smart way to think about it It reminds me of rebecca and i talking about the sunsetting of the oprah book club over on apple tv plus right like the feather in the cap of that is something they could get off the ground quickly apple tv plus like it didn't need to be you Mm -hmm. know you know our favorite tv show the last three years foundation jen um, yeah. That you and I both, right. you know, we couldn't couldn't get enough of it, um, <laughs> um, and that you know, a two hundred million thing that takes three years to put together, like yeah. it's you know, a couple yeah. of comfy chairs and good lighting and good mics. I mean, they put some money into it, but it's a completely different thing. But then yeah. the thing they could say is, we've got Oprah, right? right? And that could be a, it's not only a feather a cap, but I think it's cheese on the trap as well. It's feather right. in the trap, um, as I'm looking for show titles. <laughs> um, where now Audible can say, we're serious about podcasts. Look, we got yes. the Obamas. And mm-hmm. as they try to build out, they can that can be the lead in everything. We ponied up. We have someone yeah. coming to here. We're serious about this. And the other thing, and I think if you don't follow podcasts all that well, and I think you and I actually follow them. You often post interesting stuff in our company Slack about what's going on with podcasts. You're interested in the business side of them. Is yeah. There's not a lot of high um, high profile free agents when it comes to pos- podcasts. No. Most people are wrapped up in some kind of a deal or a network or something mm-hmm. like that. So. Part of the reason Audible got the Obamas is because they were gettable. And I know that sounds like a tautology, but it's kind of not. Like, yeah. they, they their contract was up and they were a free agent. And they're looking to make a splash because this is, in the war for the year, this is some territory they could just buy. They could just annex this. Right. And they didn't have to grow it. What Audible has not shown to me uh, or anyone else is, have you ever seen in any of those 100 most popular podcast lists anything that's an Audible only? I've never seen one. Never seen oh, one that's I don't an audible. Think so. It's a good point. This maybe puts them there. I actually don't see the mm. Obama, Michelle Obama podcast or this Renegades thing. That doesn't show up in the most popular podcast. Like the top 100 stuff I've ever looked at, it doesn't show up there. Now, maybe it's because Spotify and they don't share their whatevers. I don't really right. know. But that's my sense of it. My sense is this is a big name and maybe smaller downloads than you and I might get, might guess right. for this. Um, so anyway what i'll say this is i bet the obamas get whatever else happens i know about this when it comes to media the obamas get paid whether it's netflix or crown (laughs) or spotify the winner here is the content creator that people can point to as the feather in their cap um but this signals to me like um spotify's acquisition of find a way which is the european audiobook distributor that apparently has 422 million active monthly uniques which is an Wow. Insurmountably huge number to get all at once. I can see why they bought them. I don't know what price they paid. But then this is Audible trying to do the same thing. Now, the difference here is podcast. you have to acquire podcast by podcast. Right. That's That's a really hard thing to do. And luckily for Audible, they've got a lot of profit from their audiobook business that they could invest in growing Mm -hmm. this out. I'm not sure Spotify has as much free cash flow to invest yeah. in these kind of speculative investment than Audible does. So sometimes if you're wondering who's going to win a war, it's like you look to who has the most troops and has, who has the most grain. It might be who has the most money just to invest because there's right. a bit of a, like the old Google versus Yahoo days of search, there's a bit of a land grab, honestly, yeah. um, that's happening here. So I continue to be interested. If anyone out there 
is a devoted listener to one of the Obama shows, um, let me know just for data point purposes as well. I guess going back to our earlier story, if you're an audiobook only listener, only audiobook only reader, I should say, I'd imagine a, a podcast about book about books is probably as likely as any cohort to have a few audiobook only <laughs> listeners um, in it there. Uh, okay, I want to save. This is just something I'm excited about. I have no idea if you care about East of Eden or Florence Pugh. This was one of my I, favorite books as a teenager. I just love this story. Do you have a relationship I to either of these? I want to hear you talk about it because I have to confess the only Steinbeck I've ever read was Of Mice and Men in like seventh grade English class. It's the only Steinbeck I've ever read. <sighs> uh, East of Eden is the cool kids pick for for favorite Steinbeck. And, you know, okay. you can have your Grapes of Wrath, your Cannery Rose, your Tortilla Flats, your Travels with Charlie's, your Of Mice and Men's. East of Eden is this multi-generational epic that has one of the most devastating endings of all time. I'm not going to spoil it here except to say a very, not unlike Graves of Wrath, the cathartic, maybe maudlin, verging on maudlin end, um, but that's okay. But I can see Florence Pugh playing one of the central characters here. She has a steeliness, but also a vulnerability that's hard to, to duel. Right. I think mm. that makes for a good Steinbeck protagonist. Like you, you can't be ground up by the great American West as you often you know, see people or Westerns do. But you also can't be like Eastwood where you're ungrindable because he's right. trying to do that same thing of like people's lives are at stake here. And this is hard. Um, right. I also think she's fantastic. I mean, she's in Little Women and, and uh, Hawkeye and everything I've ever seen her. And she's great. And then Zoe Kazan is the writer, director, shepherd of this. Her grandfather, Elia Kazan, who also... Uh, did the 1955 edition of of East of Eden starring James mm. Dean, which is a super weird, like, <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. It's like, I saw my grandfather's version. I'm going to remake it. I've never heard of anything like this, but that's secondary yeah. here. And it's going to be a series. And I think that's right. It's very long. Mm. Um, there's going to be a lot of tracking shots of, of dusty California uh, byways with farms by the side of them. Um, but it goes from the Civil War to the end of World War One. Kind of a period, frankly, we don't get a lot of a, a cultural coverage yeah. of. Um, yeah. So that's always nice to see. I think this is going to be great. I, I hope. I, I think it's going to be great. I hope it's going to be great. I will watch it um, anyway. So there we go. I can do my few minutes on it. East of Eden is. It's a big ask. You're a Lonesome Dove fan. It's not. It, it's oh, yeah. not like Lonesome Dove. But the things you like Lonesome Dove, I think there's some of that in East of Eden. To be honest with you, Jeff. So, yeah, I. Having heard your spiel of it, I am now vastly more inclined. Like, I was like 0% inclined to care about this. And now I'm like 20% inclined, which is a pretty big Yeah, it's a, a, a big gain jump. Is a, is a big jump. And I do think it's interesting that, you know, the Zoe Kazan, Ilya Kazan, like, do you think maybe one of the Coppolas has done something similar? Certainly there's opportunity there. But... It'd but be weird if Sophia, like, I'm going to remake um, Heart of Darkness, which was yeah. my dad's Apocalypse Now masterpiece. Right. I mean, what a flex, I guess. Right. Uh, exactly. It, it be... is kind of a flex, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, and, I mean, I have Netflix, so, like, yeah. probably I'll at least get a chance to watch some of it. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's interesting. I, you know... I didn't realize there was also a three-part miniseries Never that seen has it. like Jane Seymour and other folks in it. It's a BBC, an ABC production, eighty-one. Yeah, ABC yeah. miniseries. Like what? Uh, so that's it's it's an interesting thing to think about, and I I actually haven't. I don't know that I've seen Florence Pugh in anything. Now that I'm thinking, did you see the Little Women? 
remake? You didn't see I, that one? I, shockingly, I still haven't okay. seen yeah. it. I know, I know. It's, it's, it's like I am its target audience, and yet I've seen very few movies over the past two years. That's fine. Yeah, happened. yeah. So, well, I guess then... um, we can sidebar about Miss Marvel in a second, but I think oh, Florence Pugh and Hawkeye might be my single favorite thing about any Marvel series that's come out yet. Her, her, her turn as, I don't remember her name. Scarlett Johansson. I'm just going to use interchangeably the character Natasha Aronoff's little sister. Oh, she is in she's in the Black Widow movie. Yes. I do recall her now. Yes. She was great. She was great. Same characters, and... similar yes. vibes. Okay. Yeah, did love her in that. Yeah. Did love her in that. So I, th- no, I, s- I can't give her favorite Marvel thing because yeah, Iman yeah. Vellani as Kamala Khan is just everything I've ever wanted. Well, let's do it now then. Let's do five minutes because so... <laughs> my, my kids and I and Michelle, my, my partner Michelle, I've been watching it. We're, well, the new one came out yesterday. We haven't seen the third episode. I think writ large, it's my favorite Marvel series. It's the most creative. It's the most different. Um, it's a great family tween teenager entertainment. Mm. Like my nine-year-old daughter is agog, as you might imagine. Um, yes. Between that and, and little Leia and Obi-Wan, it's b- big energy <laughs> for, for the nine to 12 year old superhero sci-fi fantasy set these days. Um, but it's fantastic. And she is wonderful. I don't know what else to say. Go check out Miss Marvel if you had. Yes. Did you did did you do the comics and graphic novels? Oh yeah, well, yeah. I, I, did too. I started reading it when it first started getting published, and I was actually living in Jersey City at that. Oh time. my god! <laughs> so I would go to my tiny hole in the wall Jersey City comic shop to get my Ms. Marvel like weekly floppy, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very cool to see, you know, my old neighborhood on the yeah. screen in that way. And it's very cool to see, you know, I, the, the, like most comics, it's gone through different writers and different artists, but I feel like that those first, you know, it, the magic of Sana Amanat, G. Willow Wilson, and Adriel Alfona, yes. the original team, it it does feel like it's capturing that for me, and which is no shade to like the other folks mm-hmm. who have worked on it, but I really I was so struck by it from its first issue, and I really love I love that they've changed some things. I love that the character is so true though to the mm-hmm. character in the comics even if they've changed like how her powers work or how exactly she got them or whatever like it still has that same really great uh dna and i'm just obsessed with the like the parent hulk like moment in unbelievable stuff like oh my god (laughs) so good it's so good so yeah i'm i'm big excited about that i i am i'm behind but i'm very into it yeah, I think we're setting ourselves. I hope we might be setting ourselves up for Young Avengers um, with Ooh, uh, yes. with Kamala and maybe Holland. I'm not sure, but we also might get Florence Pugh in there. Like they're they're yeah. and then Haley Steinfeld, which I think she and Kamala together again. I'm I'm confusing the characters and actors here. I could see a right. fun teenage Young Avengers thing with some of the for vibes sure. that going on here. Anyway, long story short, I'm excited for East of Eden. Um, I don't. I'm not a. I don't have much feeling for the 55 version, though it was very well received. Um, in fact, I assume it doesn't say directly, but Florence Pugh, I assume, is going to play the major female character, which I believe is Kathy Aston. I would also think that it's not impossible that they kind of recenter it to be focused on her um, mm-hmm. rather than Adam, the the husband. You could do I it mean, both it is, ways. It is interesting that the first big casting announcement is her. Yeah, and it is. Not, and know. not the fella. Because the, yeah. the main character in the book is that, but they have kids and it's, 
it's not quite that simple, but James D was the star of the original, right. but the one who won the Oscar was, I can't remember her name, who played Kathy in 1955. Oh. Um, while, we're, while we're on Grapes of Wrath and Steinbeck, yeah. this is completely random. You're not prepared for this at all, and I'm not really there, so you're, <laughs> you hear me frantically flipping through, but Publishers Weekly has been doing this thing where they, they're, they're pulling out pages from the archives and including it in um, some of the states in some of the print issues. And huh. this week they pulled a, a two page spread from June 3rd, 1939, which was about the publication sales and marketing budget of John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. Wow. So let me just throw some numbers at you here. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild. So in the ship this so this is six weeks after publication so it came out i guess in march of 1939 the copy shipped in the first week the, the, i'm sorry let me do this another way shipped in advance of publication so pre-pub the number of copies right. they shipped forty-six thousand copies of grapes of wrath in the next six weeks they shipped another forty-five thousand copies so in the first Pre-pub plus first six weeks, we're at 91,000 copies. And that is, was selling five times as well as any other book in the same window. So the next biggest book would have been 17,000 copies over that window. I was going to say, those are big numbers it's Even it would today it would be a good literary fiction hit today right yeah it yeah. would be huge i mean that's enormous it's an yeah. enormous um do you have any guess what the advertising budget was in the first in the, oh, the six God. weeks before this is a whole okay. there's no way to know this i would there's no way to know there's I'm no way to gonna, know there's no embarrassing guess here i i'm trying to like think about inflation and like yeah. what i know about publishing i'm gonna go this feels like way too much i'm gonna go with thirty thousand. I mean, you're within an order of magnitude, which I'm going to count as right, essentially. That, that's, how, that's what our margin of error here is. It was $14,000. Okay. And then they added another 5600 at the time of this publication. So about right. twenty that, grand. That far um, off, yeah. yeah. So then at the that's time- so of, much money in it's 1939. so much money. I didn't do my inflation calculator, but I believe it's something like 30 to 1, something like that. Yeah. Something Jeez. in those range. And here are the places that they advertised in. I don't know why this, I need to look at old publishers. We don't get stats like this anymore, by the way. No. And, I, and this could have been unusual that to get booksellers to, to stock it and, you know, hype it up. They're actually talking brass tacks. I can only imagine that these would have been eye-popping numbers in 1939. Right. And they're, they're, they're still remarkable now. But listen to the places they advertised in in June of 1939. Time Magazine, Newsweek, New York Times Review of Books, Herald Tribune Book Section, Harper's, Atlantic Monthly, Saturday Review of Literature, The Nation, and The New Republic. You know what strikes me about that list? It's like the same now. <laughs> They're still around. <laughs> yeah. That's like a pretty straightforward marketing plan. Yeah, for a lit fic, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what you would do. I mean, like maybe not the Saturday whatever well, review. I mean, but out of those similar. nine, eight oh, of yeah. them, you're like, that's still a reasonable place to... Yeah, I guess I would have guessed that there'd be stuff I'd never heard of that had died of yeah. all the stuff about book coverage. I thought that was interesting as well. Um, the other thing is they say is future stock as of this publication, copies in print, uh, 120,000. So there were still 30,000 available in print that yeah. hadn't been sold yet, but then they had two carloads of paper have been ordered to bring printing. I think that's a typo. I think they meant to say to bring to printing, 
by mm. June 18th. So another 150,000, another 155,000 were on the way. So wow. this is one of those classics that was a hit. And there's fewer of those than you might think, honestly, yeah. as, from right. what I know of, at least. Anyway, thank, I, I found that fascinating. I'm not sure if you found that interesting, but what, what are you going to do? I thought it was fascinating stuff. Okay, um, we're going to come back from the Wayback Machine uh, here in a minute, but let's take another uh, sponsor break real quick. I mean, Jeff, this feels like an opportunity to look at this the state of the publishing industry. Well, I, I think we could go to either one. We can go state of the board, the most popular books on Goodreads right now. Let's do oh, both fair. real quick in whatever order you want. Um, let's, I want to go to the state of publishing. Yeah, let's first do it. Because the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know what I mean? <sighs> this is interesting. Okay, so first things first. This is a piece in the New York Times, um, and it's written by Marcelo Valdez. It's really long. Like yeah. the listen to this article timestamp that the, is um, an hour and three minutes. So it's a long thing and it's a, a huge history. We're not gonna try to summarize it. I wanted to point people at it. Also in my continuing appreciation of the New York Times expanded coverage of the publishing industry, I think this might be the pinnacle of what they've done. Like this piece I, itself, yeah. um, yes. so a remarkable piece. Now, having said that, where do you want to start with this? Um, we're not going to cover the whole thing. It is, I'll give the slug, I guess. For generations, American major publishers focused almost entirely on white readers. Now a new cadre of executives like Lisa Lucas trying to open up the industry. So I guess to give an overview, it's looking at the state of efforts to diversify, I guess, the the workforce of the publishing industry itself. And I mean, publishers, when I mean publishing industry. And using Lika, Lisa Lucas's first couple of years at, at Pantheon as a lens to look at the wider thing. Um, and then the thing we haven't seen, and I haven't seen articles like this, it gives a pretty compelling and I'm not going to say exhaustive, but stuff I haven't seen about the history of racial diversity in American mm-hmm. publishing going back to like the 40s, essentially, yeah. or maybe before to the Harlem Renaissance, which I know a little bit more myself, but stuff about 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, there's a lot I don't know about here. So there's important historical work done here. And she's got yes. really interesting interviews with longtime Black women, especially in various stages, mm-hmm. people who've been at Doubleday and agents who've been around. Um, almost There's almost an oral history quality to yes. some of the stuff that's going on here. So a wonderful piece. I'm so glad it exists. Having said that, Jen, what, what struck you? What do you find the most interesting within you know the broad strokes we get with this? Yeah, I think what I thought, what I came away with feeling like, oh, I... I hadn't thought about it from that angle and I'm really glad that Valdez, you know, points this out is the, especially towards the end, you know, where Valdez has interviewed. Yeah. All of these people who have been in the industry since like maybe the seventies, you know? Um, And then, you know, Lisa Lucas is sort of this big, uh, well-publicized hire that Pantheon made Mm -hmm. um, in 2020. I think yeah, it said July. Yeah, somewhere around there. It doesn't really matter. Like, so. I, I think she was officially hired, but she didn't start until oh, like January right. 21. Oh, right. Yes, that's right. So, uh, and she was formerly at the National Book Foundation. And, you know, the article points out she came from, you know, theater, nonprofit work. Like, she is not, she wasn't an editorial assistant. She is, like, learning to do this very high-profile, intense job on the job like she is she is learning how to do it yeah. as she does it and uh one of the things that Valdez says is that you know w- the writer was very struck by lucas's optimism about you know all of these 
writers of color, especially black writers who are getting published and, you know, getting book deals right now and the sales numbers are good. And like, you know, publishing is working on diversifying its hiring and like all of these things are in motion. And she has this opportunity to really reshape Pantheon's list. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's an an acknowledgement that it takes time. Like we get these like big, you know, you get like these giant book deals for, you know, I don't know, Marlon James or whatever. But mm-hmm. then it takes time for this to really like sink in and the numbers to prove out and the, everything to earn out and like things to go into classic status, et cetera. Et cetera. Right. So there's an acknowledgement of that. But at the same time, you know, Lucas's optimism and energy is very deliberately contrasted with the weariness of <laughs> other folks in publishing who have been around since the 70s and are like, you know, we've seen it before like do I hope that it sticks this time yes absolutely but like didn't stick last time so like I don't know what's going to happen and Valdez makes this point that like well Lucas can do something else whereas like these other people like this has been they've been in this job for 30 years I don't know that that's 100% fair to Lisa Lucas like I don't know that she's got like you know her backup plan or whatever I mean it's true it is factually true that she has had other types of jobs and has not committed you know her whole professional career to uh, being inside of the publishing industry in Mm -hmm. this way Um, but I did think it was a really valid point that like you know, I think publishing needs the energy and efforts of somebody like Lisa Lucas. She's very good yeah. at doing what she does. Like, she's super good at this. And uh, and I'm really excited to see, you know, especially a high-profile imprint, at least high-profile inside of publishing, like Pantheon, get mm-hmm. somebody like her um, at the helm. But I do, I really feel for those folks who've been around and are like yeah i don't know this is maybe just the next wave and like i'm gonna go back to not being able to acquire anything by a writer of color in five years like it's a real i think it's a real good positioning of what the history of these efforts has been where we are now and like what we need to keep in mind to keep it going like it doesn't it's not going to keep going of its own volition like we have work to do to make sure it keeps going i think that's a really good point i think i think you've you're on to something really interesting about the piece and maybe the moment, like I'm an, a publishing outsider and I'm, I'm a, certainly an outsider when it comes to this really is focusing on black women, especially in yeah. publishing, which is, which is interesting. It's, it, mm-hmm. it, but it's not exhaustive either, but I'm certainly don't have access to that experience. I guess now, again, we've been doing book riot for 10 or 11 years. And Rebecca and I've talked about this at late, especially the number of books, especially by black people up and down the catalogs of most yeah. of the publishers you've heard of, it's unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I would guess it's unlike, it is categorically different than even say the Harlem yes. Renaissance or something like that. It, it's just not the same. Now that doesn't mean it's going to stick around, right. but there are a lot of books and there's a lot of award winners and there's a lot of editors and agents and the social media element of this too. There's reason to suspect it could be different. There's no guarantee mm-hmm. it will be different. I think it is an interesting cautionary tale or a word of sometimes you can mistake a trend for a systemic change, right? Yes. And we've seen trends come and go before, though they matter. Those We yes, still talk about do. Langston Hughes and yes. Zora Neale Hurston, even though it was That's trendy. Right. We still talk about Toni Morrison, even though she can mm-hmm. only get one book published a year as an editor at Random House in the 70s. Like that mattered, like a really interesting quote from Gates here saying that Morrison being hired by Random House as an editor was like maybe the single most important thing that's happened to black literature in the 20th century because it wasn't just getting picked up by Blanche Knopf um, by way of Carl Van Vechten. It was someone in deciding. The gatekeeper 
um, was a member of the community, a member of, of the identity, and a member of the group. And I, I don't, I think it's a little, I don't know if it's unfair. I can certainly see the point, like, just because Lisa Lukacs could get a different job means what right. about right. whether or not it's going to succeed. Um, I think that t- the other piece that was fascinating to me to realize here is even with all of this work being done, I'm looking just right now at the hardcover frontlist fiction bestsellers list and published a week from last week. Yeah. Of the 20, now this is not, I'm just using it as a proxy. Everyone knows how I, yes. I do this from time to time. It's not exhaustive. But of the 20 names on this list, only one of them might be a person of color. And I just don't know that mm. this night crawling by Layla Motley, I just don't know that person. Maybe she's a person of color. Maybe she isn't. Every other single person on this list is white. And that's the thing that we've always talked about, or I've always wondered about, because what publishing can do is publish more books by people of color, put marketing dollars behind them, hire people, what they cannot get, and they've never been able to do, because if they could, they would do it, is decide how much of what books people buy. Yes. And this is the, I think everything else is a prerequisite to that, but the work to be done is not to realize that, well, over the last two years, we've been publishing a lot more books by people of color, none of them have turned into hits, or none of them have turned into household names. We don't have a person of color equivalent, as I said before on the show, of James Patterson or Jennifer Weiner mm-hmm. or you know now Colleen Hoover. And I think it's ironic that at this moment where publishing has done as much work as it's ever done to diversify itself in its lists, that the huge cultural force right now in book selling is TikTok, which is algorithmic. Yes. And they have yes. almost no, they have no control over it. And we've talked about on the show before, it is almost entirely or the vast majority of the rewards of that hurricane are going to white authors. So what publishing can and can't do, you know, it can't control culture. It just can't, it can do what it can do, but there's this other piece. It can spend money. And I don't know. That's a number we don't know. Right. Like I quoted that grapes of wrath thing. Like that's right. You know, where is that happening as well? But if also we know that if money really did determine bestsellers, they could do it because then you could, you, you know, we know how this things work. It's like you spend money on enough things and one or two of them goes nuts and it pays for everything else. Yes. We just haven't seen that happen enough to say that on the book buying public's consciousness that they aren't sort of reading racistly or for lack of a better term or with prejudice or whatever else it might be. I, I just don't know what it's going to take. Um, what does success look like? I think we're getting closer to place, especially on the higher profile literary fiction, which I follow the closest, to what you would call real sustainable progress in terms of who's getting published. It's not showing up in sales yet. It's not fair. It's not equitable right. in sales yet. And that's really tough. And maybe that's where some of the weariness um, or circumspection maybe is a more generous reading from the the long timers, lifers comes in. It's like, yeah. Until we have a black James Patterson or multiple or, or an Asia API or something else like that, right. have we really gotten over the hump? And I think it's a fair well, question. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to a couple of things. First of all, the workforce has got to be to make that happen. The workforce has to yes. be diversified, yeah. which, you know, we're slowly, slowly yeah. getting in that direction. But it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of time for those new hires to like get to positions of power Mm -hmm. um, if they get them. And then I think, you know, Lisa Lucas says this in the New York Times piece, 
publishers have not been marketing to communities of color. Yeah. And it, it's true that just because you spend a lot of money marketing a book doesn't mean it's a bestseller. But if you don't spend any money on marketing a book, it's definitely not going to be a bestseller. Mm-hmm. Like the odds, you increase the odds by spending the money. You don't insure anything, but you sure as hell are way less likely to get a bestseller if you spend zero marketing dollars on a book, which is what happens to a lot of authors of color. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I have heard personal stories. I've seen the numbers. Like, the marketing plans that you get as an untried white author are much more often better than you might get if you were a person of color. So, and part of that, again, is, like, who's in the room? Who gets to decide where the dollars go? Uh, Majority white. Yep. Majority older. Like, that's just true. That's just true. Um, So, you know, it's no it's you can't you can't make you can't make something go viral. You know, you can't make it a bestseller, even if you really want to. But you can definitely increase the odds with money. And so that's that is a big piece of this, I think. Um, I just do want to verify for you that Layla Motley is a woman of color. And okay. Crawling was an Oprah book club pick. There you go. I mean, that's nice. that's both the exception and the rule right there. Right. It takes Oprah. Right. Um, to yeah, get it takes one Oprah. on the, takes Oprah it to get one Oprah. on the list. Yeah, I think maybe there's a the the old um, saw of necessary and sufficient are interesting yes. here. It's necessary to have workforce in place. It's necessary to have some kind of parity in marketing dollars, but yeah. it's not sufficient. There's another right, piece definitely. of it too um, that's going to come with time. And I hope somewhere, you know, these pieces are really interesting from a narrative point of view, but they don't have a lot of data data. Right. Yeah. One of the data pieces that you just alluded to that'd be fascinating. You know, I hope somewhere in some room that all of the big publishers, they're like, are we putting 40% of our marketing dollars behind authors of color? You know, just even yeah. to match the demographics of the yeah. U.S., right? I would suspect not. I mean, that's maybe an understatement at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think those conversations are more as, as likely to happen now as they've ever been. And I really don't believe this is going away. And part of the reason I don't believe it's going away is some of the stuff that Valdez cites here is about the changing nature of the sort of white hot center of the book buying demo, which is college graduates who make over $75,000 a year. Um, Mm -hmm. I think maybe that dovetails kind of interestingly with our stats before about who the reading of habits of the American public. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of people that live in poverty. They don't have a lot of money. They didn't go to college. Right. Um, And, but some of the, non-white populations, a lot of the non-white populations of the U.S. over the last few decades, a higher percentage of um, Latinx people are going to college and making more money and AAPI. And some of what's happening, too, at the same time is there's more of a market for people. There's more of the market in the buy side that aren't um, white people that went to Vassar or something right. like that, you know. And how are they going to address that? They don't know because they've never had to do it before. Right. Because exactly. so much of the addressable market of that 75K plus or the equivalent, whatever it was in 1939, the people buying Grapes of Wrath um, make, you know, $7,000 a year. That has been a white population. So there's a bit of a chicken and the egg yeah. element to that. And as that changes over time, um, you know, I'm, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm on watch for the David Baldacci who's um, – uh, indigenous or something like that. I mean, we just, we don't have those names yet. And as you know, so much of the book buying and selling that happens are made up in those names and they subsidize yeah. so much of the rest of the industry. I think that 
even more than Dana, Dana Kennedy at, at um, Simon mm-hmm. or even Lisa Lucas at Pantheon, that would be a, 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 a lighthouse for me to see that things, yeah. I mean, that kind of matters more, frankly. And again, these things are necessary, I think, to get there. Um, but it's a yeah. fascinating piece, um, I should it say. It is. And I, I actually think that, that to your point, it's really interesting to look at this this last piece that you have Yes, there we go, Jen. There we are. I was heartened by this. So yeah, over on Book Riot, we've got a piece about 72 of the most popular new books on Goodreads like right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously this is like, you know, a very specific sort of calculation. The Goodreads editorial team like looks at the TBRs of, you know, 140 million members. And then they they uh, sort both by not only which books were added to wishlist the most, but also which ones had a rating of 3.5 stars or higher. Yeah. And uh, our 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 editors broke it out by genre and each genre contains folks of color in the top 12 like and some a lot some of these are you know quite diverse actually which was very heartening to me because you know goodreads like i every now and then i'll look at the goodreads choice award and i'm always just like it's Mm -hmm. like it's always the usual suspect the regression to the mean award yeah there's no exactly there's no surprises there so i was expecting this to be similarly regression to the mean but it's it's actually not like black cake is number two in fiction by charmaine wilkerson like that's kind of awesome it's a debut author yeah it's amazing yeah yeah. i was really struck so there's a couple things to say i think that was my um excitement that's why i put it in here because i looked at the fiction list especially and not only have i read several of these but like just to look at the top 12 you have memphis by tara stringfellow um olga dies dream by zochil gonzalez uh, you've got Violetta by Isabel Allende, Hanigahara, Black Cake. Pretty good right there. Yeah. Another striking thing to me is look at the women. Amazing. Yes. All yes. along the watchtower. Um, mm-hmm. Really fascinating to see. The thing I can't square, Jen, is this mm. doesn't look to me at all like what's selling. No, at least according to publishers. It's, so there's some, it's a good point. there's some special sauce. Because I don't understand how... Uh, and I guess where would it show up? So right now, the best-selling book in the country is still "It Ends with Us." Is that right? Let me make sure I've got this right. That's probably right. It ends with us. Forty-seven thousand copies last week. That's Colleen Hoover. That's Colleen Hoover. It's not on any of these. Well, Colleen Hoover's it. "Reminders of Him" is on the romance. List. I know, so but Colleen Hoover shows up. But she shows yeah. up. But that book is selling. It's not even selling a half of what it. So what's going? I don't understand what's happening. Yeah, uh, maybe there's a velocity element here. I'm not saying that Goodreads is stacking the deck. There's some uh, there's some missing variable in the algebra equation I don't yes. quite understand right here. But yeah. I just wanted to give that caveat because the number one best selling fiction title right now is not One Italian Summer. Um, right. And, you right. know the number the number two or the number three best selling title last week was Where the Crawdads Sing. God. 38,000. <laughs> and I don't think this is even on any of these lists. No, is it's it... not on this list. So I don't, I don't get that. I don't understand that. Um, so there's something else happening here. But having said that, assuming that they're telling us I something mean, they true. Limited, they did limit it to books of the, the books. It looks like the books of, published this year so far. Okay, like, well, that would like explain it. Fiction. Yeah, that yeah. would explain it. So these books haven't had time to compile the sales of, you know, Crawdad or Colleen Hoover's older. Well, even if it's just the last week, 
Um, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, that's a fair point. I didn't dive into I, th- where did you see that? Just by the way, was that in the uh, link? To- I may be searching, but the very first sentence of this piece says uh, the most popular and best reviewed new books of the year so far. Ah, so, well, that that would explain it. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah. Then I would be happy to see that. But so, he, like, maybe you know, maybe these books, if if there is a sales connection to, and you know, I think you it could still be not the same. Yeah. It's very likely that it's not the same, but. But it is exciting to see that, like, so many of these authors are getting added to people's lists, which is a sign of That's good. awareness, right. right? And, like, that they have that high rankings. I mean, I, like, I when I, especially, you know, because sci-fi and fantasy is my is my central mm-hmm. jam. Um, and when I saw The Cartographers by Pung Shepard, I was like, are you, that's amazing. Like, that book it deserves to be on the list. I love that book. Would I have guessed no. that it was on here? Like, absolutely not. Like, I'm not surprised to see Emily St. John Mandela on here, but I'm delighted to see, you know, Daughter of the Moon Goddess by Su Lin Tan, like The Cartographers, How High We Go in the Dark by Nagamatsu, mm-hmm. which is like kind of a deep cut in, <laughs> yes. you know, sci fi and fantasy, but like, here it is. It's fantastic. So, yes. it made me really happy. It, I, was, I, I was encouraged, and I thought it was an interesting list. Um, on the whole, I think the other one that struck me very much was um, going down and I, I've been really interested in um, nonfiction sales recently because it's kind of mm. even stranger on the whole. Right. Um, but these, I guess they're not throwing cookbooks and stuff in here. I, 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 this one got me kind of confused. Now, listen, mm. I read the 90s Stolen Focus, How to Be Perfect, The Power of Regret, mm. Bittersweet, um, and Tell Me Everything. So, like, this is my list, I guess, right now. Right. But that's not the books I'm seeing show up on the bestseller list, even for new books. So that's where I was like, right. I don't know what's going on here. The other striking, The other striking thing to me is that while TikTok books are in here, yeah. TikTok book sales are so backlist focused that this filters yes. them out a little bit. Yes. So how does it matter that this doesn't really line up with sales? I don't know. But I think back to our earlier point was to be a backlist forever seller, you at least have to get on one of these lists to start. Or you have to be in the game yeah. when you're new. Right. And these there's right. books in the game. So maybe yes. in two years, maybe Olga Dies Dreaming is going to be a paperback favorite that sits on that Barnes right. & Noble shelf alongside Circe or something else. Um, I'm just mm-hmm. not sure. But a very interesting list. I, I really look at that. You could tell me that of the most popular books of the year, five of those will be on like the curated best books of the year list. Very possible. Right. Very right. possible um, yeah. to see. All right. Last thing. Um, wait, did I have one more thing? Was that it? I thought that was it. Oh, did I'm sorry. Oh. No. Uh, recent reading. Give me a recent favorite, yeah. Jen, before we get out of here. I am reading, I just talked about this on SFF, yeah, so I'm double dipping a little bit, but I'm reading The City Inside by Samit Basu, who is an Indian sci-fi fantasy writer who I have just been obsessed with since I picked up this book Mm. by him a few years back called Turbulence. And this new one is all about, like, the weird intersections between, like, reality TV, TikTok, surveillance. Like, my tinfoil hat is, like, getting more and more elaborate with every page I read. <laughs> but it's also, like, an action-y, like, page-turny, you know, near-future romp in a way. So I'm just, I'm really loving it, and I want more people to read Basu's work. Cool. Um, let's see. I am listening to right now An Immense World by Ed Young, which is about the senses of animals, nonfiction. Long-time listener of the show will know that both Shinsky and I are huge Ed Young fans, his last one, yes. um, I contained multitudes about bacteria and well, microbes, I guess. 
I he narrates this a wonderful narrator. It's not always the memoirs. I always want the writer, even if they're kind of not a great narrator because the voice matters. He mm. could narrate professionally. He's amazing. Great British mm. accent. Uh, really wonderful stuff. Um, Ed Young is way up there. The books take so long to write and so well researched. And he's also doing like regular day job writing about science and has been about COVID, especially. Um, he's kind of like Mukherjee, which it's now going to be in every four year, kind of like the Olympic style event when I get a new idea. <laughs> There's actually a new Mukherjee coming out in the fall, which was I was thinking about as well. And then I blew through both. Um, I had two long flights. And on the flight out I uh, to New York, I read um, Aurora by David Kep, which was awesome. Oh. It's a, It's kind of a near-term hard sci-fi in which there's a giant solar flare that knocks out power for like four months. Mm. So it's sort of like, what if Station Eleven, but just for a little while? So that was yeah. okay. It's like Station Six, I guess, is maybe one <laughs> way of thinking about it. Uh, and then I, I've been saving for the flight because I, I hate flying and a book helps me. I've been saving Linda Holmes's uh, Flying Solo, um, her newest mm. book, which is delightful and charming and set in the same world as Evie Drake starts over, but with different characters where a comfort read while I was uh, flying overnight. But yeah, those are my three. Um, Jen, this is always a pleasure. Thank yes. you so much. Uh, people can listen to you regularly on SFF. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll talk to you later.